Thanks, James, for leading us in that scripture reading. We are committed here at Friendship Community Church to the public proclamation of God's word. And after hearing that those passages, respectively, from Deuteronomy afresh, I don't know about you, but my, my heart response is, Lord, your law is beautiful, and Jesus is the perfect law keeper, as we will see today. Let's pray one more time as we prepare to dive into our text in Luke chapter 4 as we continue in our journey through Luke's gospel together. Uh, Lord, we ask you for your help now. Would you guide us in your truth? Would you guard us from error by the power of your Spirit? Exalt and magnify Jesus, your Son. We thank you for his perfect obedience and our righteousness in his standing alone. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, would you... Uh, Would you repeat these words after me, please? This passage, oh, that was weak sauce, come on, one more time. This passage is not primarily about me. One more time. This passage, you were listening. I was going to break it down for you again. Well, well done, FCC. Well, um, if you have ever been to a party where you were celebrating someone or something special, perhaps you experienced this phenomenon where you were really turned off by someone there who was trying to make that moment all about themselves, you know, instead of the thing that you were there to celebrate. For example, I use a lot of examples with children, you'll have to forgive me, we have a gaggle of them. Um, I've been to a lot of kids' birthday parties in this season of my life. You can learn a lot, by the way, about watching little kids. Uh, you can gather quite a bit about human nature. Uh, we, we, I, feel, I feel like oftentimes they're just grown-up toddlers, uh, toddlers in adult bodies and emotions. Uh, but uh, but you, you may see this if you've gone to a kid's birthday party. It's not uncommon for a small child, usually a toddler, to try to commandeer the birthday boy or birthday girl's party or their things. For example, they could actually jump in and start unwrapping the presents which are not theirs, or they could pitch a fit because the, the toys that they see being opened don't belong to them, and they're trying to like wrestle them out of the hands of a little birthday boy or a little birthday girl. Uh, Many of us are are smiling because we've seen these scenes play out in our lives, but perhaps you would also concede that there are grown-up versions of this sort of thing too, are there not? Perhaps you've been to a work party that ends up being overshadowed by someone's ego, or a wedding that unfortunately ends up being all about what the mom wanted. Perhaps you've been to a sporting event with that obnoxious parent on the sideline trying to live vicariously through their kid. And some of us just want to say in that moment, bro, cool your jets. This is not about you right now. So, respectfully, I'm going to ask that you resist the urge to be that guy or be that girl as we prepare to read Luke chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. What do you mean? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? What I'm trying to say is, please don't insert yourself into this biblical passage too soon. 
The truth is, friends, it's easier than I think we might initially think to do that sort of thing. In our humanness, in our sinful, selfish nature, we're always trying to do this. We're always trying to put ourselves at the very center. So we read through Scripture, and it's the account of David and Goliath, and we're David, right? We're always the hero. Well, in today's passage, I just want to gently remind you, before we even start reading it, you're not the hero, and this story is not about you, and it's not about me. If you've ever been to, to church or around the church world for any length of time, you've probably heard a sermon preached or sermons preached on the temptation of Jesus, which uh, we plan to dig into deeply today. And oftentimes, the main takeaway is something like this. How can you resist temptation? There certainly are biblical principles in this passage we're about to read for resisting temptation, and I think we'd be remiss to skate over them, but this passage, again, here's the drum I'm going to be beating this morning, is not primarily about that. This passage is primarily about Jesus and His victory over the evil one. In fact, friend, the whole reason why Jesus is in the wilderness in Luke 4. The whole reason why Jesus is enduring these temptations is because you couldn't do it. You didn't have it in and of yourself to obey God's law, to live righteously, to resist the tempter's snare, and neither did I. That's why He's here. So let's guard our hearts from their natural inclinations to insert ourselves into the text too early this morning. Remember, this passage is not primarily about you. Let's read together in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, as we begin working our way through this passage together, I'm going to 
remind you that context is important. This passage doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it's important for us to make sure that we're, we've got a sense for what's coming before the temptation of Jesus. Remember, Luke has told us right out of the chute in his gospel account, he's writing an orderly account. He's ordering this account of Jesus' life and ministry very particularly on purpose. So let me invite you to look here in your Bibles at the verse immediately before chapter 4, verse 1. The end of chapter 3, verse 38, what do we see? We see that Luke has just pointed us to Adam, the first son of God. And he is prompting us, friends, to compare this first Adam and his temptation in the garden with Jesus, the second Adam, in his temptation. Let's do that for a moment together so that we can make sure we're, we're tracking with what Luke is trying to communicate. Adam, think about it. Adam was set in the verdant garden of Eden. Adam wants for nothing. Adam can eat from any tree in the garden save one. Would you say he had it pretty good? Better than we will ever know. Well, on this side of the sun. Now, Consider Jesus. Jesus, the second Adam, the true and greater Adam, is driven into the barren Judean wilderness. He has nothing to eat for 40 days. His body is physically at its limit, weak and starved for sustenance. Do you see the contrast? As this is a harrowing experience, and, and we, we pick up another gospel, which I think is fun, or another uh, nugget of truth about this moment in Mark's gospel. Mark tells us in Mark 1 that Jesus was with the wild animals there in the wilderness, Mark 1.13. Got a hunch that the wild animals Mark's talking about in the Judean wilderness at this time of Jesus' temptation were not bluebirds and bunnies. So, Jesus is in danger. He's in danger from wild animals. He's surrounded by harsh and unforgiving terrain. He's got no food for 40 days, which the medical community will tell you is about the longest you can go without sustaining permanent and irreparable bodily damage. And it's at this point, this point, excuse me, when Jesus is at his physically weakest moment that Satan himself, the tempter himself, comes to Christ with these three temptations that we read about. The point, church, is blindingly clear. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the one sent to reclaim what the first Adam lost. Adam lost it all in Eden's bliss and Jesus stands victorious in the wilderness. That's what Luke is begging us to see as he places this account right here after citing Adam, the Son of God. Now, three initial considerations before we get to our first temptation here. I think Luke very intentionally frames out all of Jesus' temptations with these first two verses of chapter 
chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So, so the first thing that I, that I think we've just got to level with is this no food point. No food for 40 days. And then, and then we read the line, and he was hungry. I mean, yes, he was hungry. Do you have any idea how long that is? 40 days to go without a morsel of food? I mean, some of us here can't fathom missing lunch, let alone a day-long fast. Imagine going a full week, no food at all. How about a month and keep going? 40 40 days. I just want to give you a sense for scale for a moment. Think of it. Think of it. If you were to start a 40-day fast tomorrow, Monday morning, that would mean you wouldn't eat again until April. Oh. That, that's the point I'm trying to get across. 40 days. And note, Jesus did not do it in some whitewashed, temperature-controlled room. Perhaps a visual would help. He was here. The Judean wilderness. Harsh, unforgiving. We talked a little bit about the wilderness last time. This, uh, this picture, I, lo- I love this picture. This one was taken just wh- a week or two ago by Sandy Huffman. Sandy, where are you? There, there she is. She sent me some images of her time in Israel, and this was one that she took from, we're not exactly sure of the precise location where Jesus' temptations began in the wilderness, but this is the region. This is where Jesus was. Harsh, hot, unforgiving. No food, trekking through this barren wasteland for 40 years. Days. Now, the Reformed Expository Commentary puts it this way. I, I can't put it better. I'm just going to repeat their words to you. Uh, they, they write, What Jesus suffered in the wilderness could have killed a weaker man. His condition, after 40 days, was critical. At the end of 40 days, he was closer to death than at any other point in his life except the crucifixion. Think about that. And this is when the tempter comes. This is an example of physical temptation. You know a thing or two about that? Physical temptation at its peak. One more important thing I think that we should note about these 40 days before we blaze on is that Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, is meant for us to make a connection to the Israelites. His 40 days correspond to the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in this wilderness. What God's people Israel had failed to do in keeping His covenant words given to them in the desert, He, Jesus, the true Israel, the true obedient covenant-keeping Son, would do here. In the wilderness. After all, think about it. Hadn't Israel, if you know your Old Testament, hadn't Israel pined for food in the wilderness? What'd God do? He gave them bread. That's temptation number one. 
Hadn't Israel bowed down to other gods in the wilderness? Voila, temptation number two. Hadn't Israel put God to test time after time after time? Enter stage right, temptation number three. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true Israel, the only faithful Son of God the Father. And Jesus here is enduring an ongoing onslaught of temptations throughout this 40-day period. That's important for us to see. Luke gives us just three examples, three, I think, climactic examples at the end of these 40 days as Satan is just swinging for the fences. How do we know that these weren't the only three temptations, that there were temptations that were coming, ongoing throughout this period of time? Well, I think we know it in two places here from Scripture. Look at verse 2, and then you can put your finger on verse 13. First, we see in verse 2, Jesus was being tempted. I'm going to resist the urge to go grammar on you right now. But this is, this is not just a snapshot. The being tempted in that 40-day period refers to an ongoing temptation. And verse 13, I think, seals the deal. We read that when Satan had finished every temptation... That word every, there in verse 13, is the Greek word panta, which carries the sense of comprehensiveness. In other words, the Bible is telling you, when Jesus had been tempted in every way, when he had experienced the whole gamut of temptation that Satan had to throw at him, in other words, the devil threw the book at Jesus. Every temptation in the book. And Jesus stands victorious. That's why we opened our service this morning with that glorious passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It's worth just reading again and gawking at. The author of Hebrews tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows we're dust. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Let me, if I may, this may be a bit crude, so if it helps you, great. If not, just chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Just, just to share a, a simple illustration of what it means for Jesus to carry the full weight of every temptation and still stand victorious against the evil one. As many of you know, we've got a, a large family. We love the beauty of the chaos and the love that's there. We've got uh, seven children in our house right now, and as you can imagine, in a, in a family of nine, we take out quite a bit of trash. Quite a bit of trash. And um, This past week, our little five-year-old Phineas wanted to help us take out the trash. He wanted to be a big boy and, and help daddy. And so there we were tying up this particular trash bag, getting ready to take it outside uh, to the, the outside trash can, the larger one, waiting for a collection. And, uh, and I was letting him, you know, do his thing. And, and so he's huffing and puffing and trying to strain to pull out this overly full trash bag, I might add. 
and it was just it was just too much for him, right? And uh, but but it, I thought it was good for him, right? He was struggling, he was trying his best, and he finally, uh, you know, after all all of his struggling and grunting with his five year old mind, he kind of looks up at me, defeated, and he said, "Too heavy." <laughs> and and we agreed that particular bag was a dad bag. Um, why am I telling you this? Well, it struck me as I was preparing for this message as interesting that although little Finn gave it the best he had, he never actually felt the full extent of the weight of that garbage bag, did he? His five-year-old muscles gave out long before he was able to bear the whole burden. Think about for just a moment how that could apply to Christ's temptations. Friend, you and I will never know the full weight, the full extent of temptation's force. We've all given in far before we could bear the entire load. Only Christ has been able to feel the full weight of temptation's force. Only Jesus has been able to bear its extent to the fullest. He bore the whole thing friends, and still emerged victorious. All right, got to get to this first temptation. One more staccato note here. One more important note for us to see before we, we, we dive in to these three temptations that are climactic at the end of this 40-day period. We see not once, but twice in verse 1. Look with me. The connection to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit. Mark's Gospel says, driven out after His baptism into the the wilderness. In other words, it was God's Spirit, God, very God, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, who led Jesus to do battle with the enemy. Jesus wasn't passive. Jesus wasn't going about His business and then the enemy just sort of overwhelmed Him and surprised Him. No, the Holy Spirit said, you fight. He went on the offensive. It was the Spirit who sent Him out to do this work, to fight this battle with the tempter. And it was the Holy Spirit who not only led him to it, but led him through it. He remained full of the Spirit throughout these temptations. What I'm trying to say is this, is, this Spirit detail is not an incidental. Jesus fought the devil filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's that same Spirit which, by merit of His death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, which He gives to all of His children to help us resist temptation. The same Spirit which rose Jesus from the dead. The same Spirit which led Him to the wilderness, through the wilderness, into victory, indwells all who would trust in Christ. Let me just give you a nugget and we'll we'll move on. This is Galatians 5.16. Love this. Helps us to understand that if we're walking with the Spirit, if we're keeping in step with God's Spirit, there's no room 
to straddle the fence. Galatians 5.16. But I, I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. A lot more we could say here, but suffice it, suffice it to say as a cap that we should just pause before rushing too quickly onward to recognize what an incalculable gift we have been given. Oh, how great the love of the Father that He's lavished upon us. So many priceless gifts, chief among whom is His very Spirit to help us with everything needed for life and godliness. All right, let's... Let's get into these temptations. The first one we, we hear about, we read about in Luke's gospel is in verses 3 and 4. It's the temptation at the end of this 40-day period to satisfy, for Jesus to satisfy his longing, yearning, physical needs. It's the temptation to turn the stones in that barren wilderness you saw a moment ago into bread. The devil begins with the phrase, if you are the Son of God. Some of you may have done a little thinking through this before. Some do take this word, if you are the Son of God, this phrase, to to be Satan getting Jesus to doubt whether he even is God's Son. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, if you're the Son of God. But I think more likely, this is a challenge for Jesus to demonstrate that his sonship is legit. That word if in the original language can also be translated since. So let's roll with that for just a minute. Since you are the Son of God, Jesus, since you are the high and mighty Messiah, why don't you prove it? Either way, however you take it, the the result is the same. And we shouldn't forget for a moment that Jesus knew, Jesus knew He was the Son of God. I mean, we've just read through the first couple chapters of Luke's Gospel. Didn't we see that very pronouncement made over His life before His birth? That He would be divine, that He'd be the Son of God. Didn't He know when He was 12? Just read this a couple weeks back. He declared it to his mother and his earthly father in the temple as they were looking for him that God was his father. And that event immediately before this temptation, and just just look back a few verses, is Jesus' baptism. As he's standing there in the water praying, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in bodily form, and God the Father echoes audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Did Jesus know He was the Son of God? You better take it to the bank, He knew it. So Satan, in his wild, says, since that's true, Jesus, since you're the Son of God, Make these stones become bread. If you're the Son of God, Jesus, why are you so hungry? 
You're God the Son for crying out loud. You don't have to be hungry. Now, quick aside, you can just do with this what you want. It's interesting to note that later on in his ministry, Jesus would perform a bread miracle, wouldn't he? He didn't turn stones into bread. He took bread and turned it into more bread and then turned it into more bread. So much bread that thousands of people were sustained by the bread. And then he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That's for another day. You see what Satan was trying to do? He was trying to get Jesus to exalt his own needs, his very legitimate, dire needs, by the way. But he was trying to get Jesus to elevate his personal needs over the will of the Father. I like how Dale Ralph Davis, the Old Testament commentator, uh, summarizes Satan's tactics here in this first uh, temptation. Davis says it this way. We got this for you on the screen. Satan wanted Jesus to fixate on his need, to put his need for bread, for food, for sustenance in the driver's seat. And Jesus would have none of it. Remember that time later in his ministry when he was at that well in Samaria with that jaded woman, that Samaritan woman? Jesus was weary from his journey, and uh, John, uh, the apostle, tells us that he sent the rest of the disciples into the city to get food. He was tired, weary, in a parched land, and he was hungry. Sound familiar? And he encounters this Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Let me just give you just a snippet. This is so good. John chapter 4, verses 31 to 34. See if you can connect the dots. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. They'd come back from the city bearing food. Excuse me. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, "Has, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Clueless. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Ah. Jesus, you're about to die. Why are you so poor? Why are you so wretched? Why are you so weak? You're the Son of God, remember? If you're God's Son, the whole earth is yours. You're the co-creator of the cosmos. Make these stones become bread for crying out loud. What are you doing? Put your needs first. Jesus' response, I've got food that you know nothing about, Satan. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Man, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. We read it just a moment ago. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Matthew completes the quote, but, but from every mouth, a word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right, let's, let's think for a moment about application. Again, this passage is not primarily about us. You see Jesus, I mean, victor, 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 doing what we can't do. And yet we ought to say, every once in a while, we ought to come up for air and say, okay, what what do we do about this? Well, I want to be careful. I want to 
tread lightly but purposefully here. Because I think this does pertain to us in a big way, in a glaring way in 2023. You see, there is a culture swirling around us, this milieu, a culture of self-care that has permeated the very air we breathe. Self-care. You've heard of this, right? Friends, it's lopsided and it's wrong. I'm not denying. Please don't take me to say that you don't need to care for your body at all. Please don't take me to say that you don't need rest or that you don't need to be a good steward of your, your time or your body, that you don't need to have a Sabbath, that you don't need to relax. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have hit the ball way beyond the field of self-care and it's landed into the field of self-serving. It's amazing what you can do in the name of self-care these days. You can neglect your family. You can neglect your job. You can neglect obedience to God. After all, you probably just need a rest, a rest, a break. No, take care of your body. Jesus got away, didn't he, at times? But there is a, there's such a thing, and it's a dominant impulse in our culture today, of caring for me and my needs, of elevating my needs as chief and most important, even above the will and way of God. You see what Satan was saying? Jesus, this is serious. 40 days? You're not going to make it much longer. Eat, eat, man. Would you eat? It's not that hard. You can do anything. Make these stones become bread. Well, the Spirit had led him out into that wilderness. And God wanted him hungry for our sake. And Jesus was not going to elevate his, even his physical needs, as dire as they were, above the will of his Father. You see? I sat this week a bit overwhelmed by all this, just thinking, guilty. I'm, I'm guilty. I was singing that song by City of Light, uh, City of Light. We've sung it here before. We'll, Lord willing, sing it again. Your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. And this part just stuck out to me like a sore thumb. My heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me to seek your kingdom first. That's me. My heart is drawn to self-exalting. And I got a hunch that yours is too. Self-care is okay as long as it remains faithful. It ought never to eclipse what God has told us in his word comes first. And that's his kingdom. That's his word. All right, let's keep moving. Temptation number two, verses Five to eight, Satan says to Jesus, bow to me, just a little genuflection. And literally, the, the, the word in Greek is to bend the knee. Jesus, just, just a little bow, and I'll give you the nations 
He takes him up. We don't know where he goes up to in Luke. Matthew tells us he goes up to a very high mountain and in a moment's time gives Jesus a snapshot of all the kingdoms of the earth. All of the wealth and glory and might, economic and military and you name it. Satan says, I'm the prince of the prince of the earth. All this has been given to me. I can do with it what I will. Just just bow to me, Jesus, and I'll give all the nations to you at your disposal. It's been observed at this temptation that what Satan's second temptation here in Luke really boils down to is the crown without the cross. What's Satan saying? I know why you're here, Jesus. Since you're the Son of God, since you're the Messiah, you're here to reconstitute the kingdom. You're here to take from me, to plunder my kingdom, to bind the strong man, and and, and you're going to build heaven on earth. That's where this whole thing is going, right? Satan's read his Bible, you better believe it. Let's just acknowledge that this may not be a temptation for you or me, but this, all the nations, is precisely what Jesus had come into the world to get. And we'll be quick. I'll just give you a couple couple bullet points. This isn't even on the screen. Don't worry about turning there. We'll go fast. Psalm 2.8, ask of me. That great messianic psalm. Yahweh says to his son in Psalm 2, excuse me, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You've read the book of Daniel, you know, there's this glorious image in Daniel 7 of the ancient of days giving the kingdom to the Son of Man. Make no bones about it. Jesus came for a whole lot of reasons. But it's nothing short of kingship. He is, after all, the king of kings. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess his lordship. Remember this promise? We've just been repeating it over and over and over again. That Abraham was going to be a blessing to all nations. His offspring to all nations. Here's the offspring all nations, Satan says, see them all? You can have them without any of the pain. Satan says, no fight needed. I'll, I'll give them to you. All you have to do is a little bow. No cross, no suffering, no humiliation. I can give you what you're after, Jesus, right here and now. Praise God that Jesus did not take the shortcut. His response, it is written. Deuteronomy 6, 13. Worship and serve God alone. Jesus says, no way, Satan. There's not a chance. What's this temptation illustrating? Well, it's illustrating that worship of the one true God is more important than gaining the whole world. 
gosh, I feel like I've heard that before. Oh yeah, it was Jesus. What good is it if you were to gain the whole world? Not do it God's way and forfeit your soul. So, just a, just a blip of application as we move to the final temptation. Friends, we dare not fall for the allure on a lesser scale of the prizes, of the fool's gold that the world has to offer. Is it possible that you have placed other aspirations or loves in your life before the true and unadulterated worship and pursuit of your God? Career? I don't know, physical fitness? That's not my problem, but maybe it's yours. Personal comfort and pleasure? Relationships? My kids are in a monopoly phase right now. Let me use some monopoly terms. Don't trade Boardwalk for Baltic Avenue. It's a bad idea. Don't trade worship for anything else. All right, let's keep tracking. Temptation number three, verses 9 to 12. Satan leads Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple complex and says, jump. What's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to put God to the test. Let me give you just a sense for scale. You see this picture? You'll recognize the thing on, I guess it's your left. What's that? Statue of Liberty. Does anyone know the image on the right? Hey, all right, I'm proud of y'all. Big Ben. These structures are both approximately, give or take, 300 feet tall. Now, there's a lot of squabbling about measurements, but the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem sat overlooking the, a steep drop, excuse me, drop, <clears throat> wow, ascent into the Kidron Valley. And if you were standing at just the right spot, you could be looking over 300, some people say, up to 500 feet of space, a straight drop down. Now, let's be more conservative, just so as not to overstate our point. Let's say 300 feet. That's like climbing up to the peak of the flame of the Statue of Liberty and jumping off. Or like standing at the summit of Big Ben. You see these people down here? See how big they are? 300 feet is a lot of feet. Satan brings them up to the center of religious life and existence at Jerusalem and says, jump. Now, this gets, uh, this gets a little bit tricky, and I think just so devious, so wily, so full of guile. Satan has noticed that Jesus has been combating his temptations with the Word of God. It is written, Deuteronomy 8. It is written, Deuteronomy 6.13. So you know what Satan says? Hey, Jesus, guess what? It is written. Look at his temptation here. The third temptation. What's Satan do? He quotes 
Scripture to Jesus. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And he does a very good job of reciting Scripture faithfully. Go figure. The enemy knows his Bible inside and out better than you or me. Satan, who is no dummy, says, Okay, Jesus, you want to claim that God's Word is your authority? Is your guide for all life and living for truth? How about Psalm 91, Jesus? How about that great messianic prophecy where it says that God would command His angels concerning the Messiah to guard Him, to watch over Him. Psalm 91.11 Lest He strike His foot on a stone. God promises about you, since you are the Son of God, that you're never going to be harmed outside of His control. Wow. If you really believe what the Bible says, Satan is saying, if you really believe that you're the Messiah, then prove it, Jesus. Put them together. But Jesus, listen now, does not need to test God or His Word in order to prove its truthfulness. Remember what he said to Pilate as he was going to the cross? Pilate said, man, you better answer me and my questions. Don't you know I've got the power to kill you, Jesus? What did Jesus say? You have no power over me unless it was given from you from above. And then Jesus says, if I wanted to right now, I could call upon my Father and he would send 12 legions of angels at my disposal. Scare you, Pilate. Jesus was not willing to take Pilate's bait, nor was he willing to take Satan's. Jesus wasn't into testing God. Quite the contrary. Jesus knew that God had led him to this moment. It was God the Spirit who had led him into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy so that he could be tested, not the other way around. Satan says, prove it. You're God's son, Psalm 91. Go ahead. Jesus' response is not to balk. What am I going to do? He's using Scripture. Well, yeah, that's one of the things that the enemy does. You know, the best kind of a lie is a half-truth warped and manipulated. We've all been here. People taking God's Word and playing origami with it, bending it every which way to make it into something elaborate to accomplish what they wanted to say. Satan's the father of that nonsense. Quoting Scripture, ripping it out of context, misapplying it. Jesus combats the misapplication of Scripture with what? More Scripture. It is said, where, where is it said? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let me just, I'll, I'll give you the high level snapshot. In response to temptation, here's what Jesus does. He quotes 
the Bible, more specifically the law. Remember the law that the Israelites wandered through the desert, having received it in the desert, breaking it over and over and over again? Here Jesus and His 40 days in the wilderness keeps the law perfectly and uses it as His authority. Deuteronomy 8.13 Man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 6.13 Deuteronomy 6.16 Boom, boom, boom. Now, you could say Jesus is the perfect embodiment of Psalm 119. You know that psalm, right? The longest chapter in all of Scripture that extols the beauty and the goodness of God's Word. I'll just give you one more before we close this thing out. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can can you remain pure and sinless in God's eyes? By guarding it, the psalmist writes, according to your word. And then verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. This has not worked for me. Not perfectly. The principle, yes. Yes and amen. But regularly, I sin and fall short of the glory of God. Which is why confession, which we did just a minute ago, is so blasted important. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of Psalm 119, verse 11. Jesus had stored up His Word, God's Word in His heart, His beautiful law in His heart, and He was not going to sin against His Father. What do we do? Well, we know because of the uniqueness of who Jesus is and what He's done that this passage isn't primarily about us. But that doesn't mean there's nothing that we should do about it. Would you agree? Our application of this passage in Luke 4 is not, well, Jesus beat Satan with Scripture, so I can too. Wrong. It's not as if Jesus is a slightly stronger kid on the playground who says, here, I'll show you how to do the monkey bars. Okay, now you can do it too. I showed you the way. That's not the picture of what's going on here. Jesus came down from heaven's glory to defeat the tempter because you couldn't do it. Right? We had no hope of resisting the tempter's snare. And we've proved that, haven't we? Time and time again. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. So instead, I know this is a clunky analogy, kids on the playground, just maybe this helps some of you. Our posture ought to be that kid on the monkey bars who rather than saying, He did it, so now I can do it too. No, the rungs are like miles apart. You can never reach. The response is for us to hold up our hands and say, Help! You ever see a kid do that on the monkey bars? You've been in that position? Grandparents, parents, what do you do? Well, you you go over and you kind of hold them awkwardly by the midsection as they like, you know, try to touch the bar. And you're carrying their, their whole weight, right? As they're trying to swing across to the other side. That is a right application 
of this scripture. It's like the song Ruthann led us in earlier. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, has he prevailed in your life? He's prevailed in mine. What's the answer? Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And then we sing the chorus. He will do it. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Why? Because my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. You see the difference? It's true. We ought to write Scripture on our heart. It is a powerful sin deterrent. But your hope is not in your ability to white-knuckle your way to righteousness. Which is why those glorious passages in Hebrews are so true and why we have to cling to them. Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 4.15 and 16. For because He Himself suffered when tempted, He is able to help, there it is, to help those who are being tempted. And, and where we began, hopefully we just never let go of this passage, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the conclusion. Here's where we've been driving. Thank you for your patience this morning. What do we do in temptation? Jesus won the victory. How about us? What do we do? Well, we come boldly. This is what we do. We come boldly to Jesus for help. Informed by His Word, it is written, and empowered by His same Spirit. That's what we do. Our confidence, our only hope, is Jesus' victory over sin and death. Which is why Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, wrote that old hymn. I guess he wrote it. It was new. Anyway. Um, Did we in our own strength confide? No. Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. That's what it takes to defeat temptation. You've got to trust in the right man. Thus, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. He. Same. And He must win the battle. Friends, He has won the battle. He took it to the enemy in the wilderness and He proved it on His way to the cross. He is the true and greater Adam. He is the true and spotless Israel. He is Savior. He is King. And the one that Satan said, I'll give all the authority of these nations to, now after His resurrection has risen and said, all authority is Mine. Hallelujah. What 
the Savior. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing that song from so many years ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Jesus. When we were in sin, when we were ensnared and hell-bound, we were unworthy of Your love, You came and bore not, not only the ultimate punishment, but You lived the life we could never live. Perfectly obedient. And we thank You, Lord, that You didn't come to serve Yourself. You came to seek and save the lost. You came to glorify Your Father. And now You have built and are building a kingdom that will never perish. And we thank You for the incalculable privilege right now of being a part of that kingdom in Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, Keep us steadfast. Keep us walking in step with Your Spirit. Keep us close to Christ. May He be our ever-present help in time of need. May we flee to the presence of Christ away from sin for His help in our time of need. We love You, Lord. And we pray now grow us up in this grace as we sing now of your glory and your victory. And all God's people said.